Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for the gifts that you've given to men and to women of your church. Thank you that you have led us in song, lifted our eyes towards Christ who has paid it all for us. And now we look at his word and we pray that you would send the same spirit that gives gifts to men and women, children who trust in you, that we would also have the ability to see it truly, to understand it, to delight in it, and to live it out. And this we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. You may be seated. Our scripture passage this morning is Mark chapter 15, verses 42 through chapter 16, verse 8. Mark 15, 42 through 16, verse 8. And you'll find that on page 843 of the Pew Bible. We'll say that this is the last sermon in our studies in the Gospel of Mark. It's been slightly over a year that we began, and uh, I hope that you have benefited from this study. You may wonder why then there are 11 verses left, verses 9 through 20 of chapter 16. If you're reading a modern translation, then most likely you'll notice there that there's a notation that many of the earlier and most reliable manuscripts do not include those verses uh, within their text. And there are a variety of reasons why we can, and many scholars do assume, that verses 9 through 20 are not part of the original manuscript of Mark. And so I will not be preaching on those. Uh, if you would like to know more about that, I'd be happy to talk with you and you can see me afterwards. But uh, we'll conclude our studies here with a look at the resurrection of Jesus. And so let's begin reading here in Mark chapter 15, verse 42. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth. Who, has, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid." You may be familiar with the name Josh McDowell. 
He's a man who has worked for many years, decades, with Campus Crusade for Christ. It's a uh, non-denominational college ministry on many campuses around the United States and indeed around the world. The book that he is most well known for is More Than a Carpenter, but he also wrote a book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. It's a very thick book giving evidence of all the reasons why we ought to believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that the resurrection really happened. But Josh McDowell did not set out to write a book because he was a Christian and wanted to help other Christians in their faith or even to convince non-Christians. In fact, he was a non-Christian when he set out to investigate what would turn into this book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. He had gone off to the university, and while he was there, the first few weeks, he saw a group that was meeting together. It was a small group Bible study, and he got to know some of these people. And he realized they had something that he did not have. They seemed to have a love for one another that outshined any love that he had ever experienced in his life. And he began to ask one of the young college girls about this love that seemed to be a part of her life. And she said, well, I'll tell you the answer. It's because of Jesus Christ. And he said, oh, don't give me that garbage. I don't want to hear any of that religious stuff about Jesus. She very calmly and coolly kept her head and talking to him rather than trying to convince him of why he ought to believe in Jesus. She simply challenged him and said, you go and investigate. See what you think. Look at all the evidence and come to your own conclusion as to whether or not Jesus really is the son of God and whether or not he is really raised from the dead. And that's exactly what he did for an entire year. He he left the university and he traveled around the United States, he went to Europe, he went even to the Middle East, and he began to investigate all the claims that the Bible makes, particularly the New Testament, as to whether or not Jesus really is the Son of God. And in the end, he was convinced. That's why he wrote the book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. You know, the Gospel is not good news unless it is historically reliable and true. If it's not true, then we are foolish, Paul says. We are to be pitied above all people, Paul says, about the resurrection if it's not really true. But what the Gospel accounts tell us about Jesus is that He really was dead. If you look here at the account, we see of Joseph of Arimathea who's coming to ask for the body of of Jesus. Mark even speaks of Him as a corpse. He's a dead man. Pilate investigates himself. Pilate, we're told in verse 44, was surprised to hear that he had already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. When he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. The centurion was a professional at executing people. And he tells Pilate, yes, Jesus is dead. But... This passage is not just about the fact that Jesus died, but it's about the fact that Jesus was raised too. We see that Jesus is buried as the normal custom of the Jews. But yet, the tomb is empty. And Jesus is raised. He is no longer there. And there's no other explanation that any critical scholar has put forward that will ever account for all the evidence that the Bible gives. 
the swoon theory that somehow Jesus just fainted on the cross. And even though He was wrapped up in burial cloths, even though He was put in a tomb and received no medical treatment, that He somehow revived and was able to push aside this great massive stone that took many men to push aside. And then He overpowered the Roman guard and escaped. Or maybe people were just hallucinating when they saw Jesus. But if that was true, all the Roman authorities had to do, all the Sanhedrin had to do was produce the body. Here's Jesus. You're just lying to everyone. And then, of course, maybe the body was stolen. But the disciples could never overcome this great Roman guard that was before them. There's never been a theory put forward to explain the resurrection other than the fact that it actually happened. And when uh, Sherlock Holmes tells us that when you take away all the other evidence, all the other theories, whatever is left, how improbable it may seem to us, must be true. And the same is true with the resurrection. All the other theories don't make sense unless Jesus really is God. And He has been raised. Now all the other Gospel accounts give great detail about the resurrection. And they go out of their way to give evidence as to why it's true. Speaking of all the witnesses who saw Jesus at one time, 500 people saw Jesus. That Jesus was really raised bodily because He ate with His disciples. But Mark is different. Mark is not like the rest of the Gospel accounts. He has a slightly different purpose. What Mark ends with here are two seekers. One, Joseph of Arimathea, who is, we're told, seeking the kingdom of God. And another group, these group of women who have come seeking Jesus. But the Gospel ends in verse 8 with this group of women fleeing into the morning, afraid, astonished, bewildered, uncertain as to what is taking place. And it's as if Mark wants us to ask ourselves the question, can we believe? Can we believe? Without all the evidence, can you simply take God at His Word and trust that what He says is true? That's Mark's purpose. It's an invitation to believe the Gospel. He started out by saying, the Gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And here it is that not only has He died, but He has been raised to newness of life. And we need to ask this question. What would happen, or what does happen, when people believe? The first thing is this. Faith, faith will drive out fear. The women come early in the morning expecting to complete the burial task. It has been done with great haste by Joseph of Arimathea and actually Nicodemus, as we'll see later. And while they look on in verse 47 of chapter 15, they notice exactly where Jesus' body was laid, the tomb in which He was put. But we're told in chapter 16, when the Sabbath was passed, because there, were, there was no opportunity to do any burial preparations on the Sabbath. And so as the Sabbath passed, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, the mother of Jesus, 
bought some spices and they were going to anoint Jesus' body. But what we're told here, when they get there, they entered the tomb in verse 5. They saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. It's the very thing that happens when people come in contact with a heavenly being. Think of the shepherds. When the angels of heaven came forward to announce that Jesus was born, do not be afraid. What about when Peter went fishing with Jesus and Jesus brought in this great catch and Peter fell before him in great fear. Lord, get away from me, I'm a sinner. What about when Jesus walked on water and all the disciples were scared? And here again, when everybody, when anybody comes in contact with a great heavenly being and in in fact, especially when they come in contact with the Lord Himself, they bow down in fear. Why? Because of His greatness in part, but also because this is not what they expected. Look in verse 6. He said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid Him. What were they seeking? They were seeking a dead Jesus. They weren't looking for a risen Jesus. They weren't looking for a live Savior. It wasn't their expectation. And it wasn't the expectation of all the disciples too. Luke tells us that. John tells us that. None of them understood from the Scriptures from the Old Testament that not only would the Messiah die, but that He would be raised again on the third day. And it was all just too much for them. And so we're told in verse 8 that they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Now this word astonishment literally means to be in a, in a trance-like state. You ever been that way? You've been so surprised by something, so astonished by something that you're speechless. You, you can't even talk. And that's the state that these women were in. They were so afraid they were astonished and fearful and it's as if they were almost too afraid to believe could it possibly be true could it really be true josh mcdowell the reason he was so angry at those christians who challenged him was because of his own upbringing he grew up in a small town of 1500 to 2000 people in michigan his father was the town drunk. He was abusive, almost beating his mother to death. There were times when his, Josh's friends would come over and in order to save face and not be so ashamed when his father would do something foolish, he would take his father who was nearly passed out, take him out to the barn because they lived on a farm and literally tie him up until the next morning so that his friends did not have to see his father. Josh experienced a great hardship when he was growing up. And his mother had endured so much so that by the time Josh graduated from high school, his mother said, your father has broken my heart. I'm going to die. 61 days later, after Josh graduated from high school, his mother died. Literally of a broken heart. But when Josh was 11, his older brother had sued his parents and won. 
And he ended up with part of the estate, part of the farm. One of the things that he gained was a particular house that had been built for farm workers. And he wanted to take that house and put it on a new piece of property for himself to live in. His parents begged him, don't do this. We need this house. But one day he showed up with all the equipment and his parents came out and they were going to try to stop him. But the whole community gathered together. And Josh said as an 11-year-old boy, he went out there to see what was about to take place. And what he saw were all these townspeople shouting at his father, calling him down and cursing him and telling him to get back because this was the rightful property of his son, that he had no right to claim it. When Josh saw all of that, he just broke down, he sprinted for the barn, he buried himself in a corn pile. And it was there that he became very angry at God. God, why have you abandoned me? He felt extremely alone. And after about three hours, when when nobody came for him and nobody noticed that he was missing, he flew open the door of the barn and he said the, the light just shocked him back into reality. And it was there, he said, that I shut God out and I slammed the door on his face. Why? Because he was afraid. Afraid that a God like the God of the Bible could actually love him. And you know, there's always, always fear in the heart of every disciple before they come to know Jesus in faith. For some people, it's maybe being afraid that I'm being lied to. Maybe it's all a lie. Maybe I'm just being duped. Maybe it's not true. Maybe all the evidence has just been cooked up. Maybe by the end of my life, I've given myself to the church and they've taken my money. But there's no truth to it all. And some people are afraid of of being lied to. If that's you this morning, let me challenge you, just like those friends on campus with Josh McDowell, I challenge you, go look at the evidence. See what it says. Because my confidence is in the Scriptures that what God declares to be true is really true. But I think much more than that is actually a fear that God could never love a person like me. That I couldn't really trust that He would love me. And that I think is what Josh's fear was. That God could not love me. He would not love me. Therefore, I will not trust in Him. And so he ran away. And it's a fear like that that keeps many people from coming to faith in Jesus. I think it's that kind of fear that actually kept the people in the book of Acts in Jerusalem from coming to Christ. We're told in Acts chapter 5 that when the crowds saw the Christians and they saw them worshiping together, they saw their love for one another, that none of the the rest dared to join them. But they held them in high esteem. They were afraid this all seems too good to be true. This love that you have for one another, this love that you say that you experience from God can't be true. And it's that kind of fear that keeps people from coming to faith in Jesus. But after a year of study, where Josh McDowell wrestled with the claims of Christ of whether or not it was true, he came to the point where he said, I need to make a decision. If it's true, or maybe I just want to be loved so badly that I'm willing to be believe a lie and be manipulated by other people 
Which is it? And one day he read from Exodus chapter 34 where it spoke about God being a jealous God and he didn't understand that and began to search that out and what he realized is that what that meant was that God was so passionate about loving His people. He wanted to be with them. He was jealous for them. Jealous for their time. Jealous to spend all of eternity with them without the hindrance of sin. He realized, God, if, if this really is true then what you want is me. That I can trust you. That's why the angel many times over in the Scriptures, and indeed right here, says, do not be alarmed. Do not be afraid. Do you see my goodness? Do you see my love for my people that I would sacrifice my own son for them? And come to me. Trust that I love you. And I will turn your fear into faith. Well, not only will God turn our fear into faith, but He also turns faith into courage. Faith into courage. We see here Joseph of Arimathea. He goes and he asks Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, that was an unusual request and certainly an unusual one to uh, give to someone by Rome. Oftentimes, the Romans wanted to leave the corpse up on the cross to decay so that the wild beasts and animals would come and rip it apart again as a, as a warning sign. Do not transgress against the law of Rome. And yet Pilate here is merciful and gives it to Joseph. Now, what do we know about Joseph? Well, we know he was a rich man. And we know that because here in... Uh, here in Mark, we're told that he puts Jesus in a tomb. But actually in Matthew, it tells us that he put Jesus into his own tomb. That he had cut out of the rock himself. In fact, it was a brand new tomb. It wasn't one that he inherited. It was one that he paid to have excavated. And it wasn't like the kind of tombs that the common person was laid in. Because of all the tombs, nearly a thousand of them that have been excavated around Jerusalem... Only a small percentage actually had stones that were rolled in place of the opening. This is one of those. It says that Joseph was a very wealthy man. He had the means, the resources to acquire such a tomb as this. And he was wanting to honor Jesus by placing him there. But not only was he rich, we're told that he was a member of the Sanhedrin, the, the council. It's the same council that voted for Jesus to be crucified. But we're told in other Gospels that Joseph did not consent with them. He may have been the lone dissenting voice that said, we should not do this. Now Luke tells us that he was also a good and righteous man. That he was looking for the kingdom, as Mark said. But initially he was a coward. Because we're told in the Gospel of John that he was a disciple of Jesus, but he was a disciple of Jesus secretly because he feared the Jews. So, much like Peter who stood in the shadows to say, I really am a believer, Joseph stood in the shadows too. Here he was a man of great position, a man of great wealth. And he followed Jesus secretly because he was afraid. Maybe, maybe he would lose it all. 
And in fact, we're also told that Nicodemus is one of the men who helped Joseph bury Jesus. You remember Nicodemus. When did he come to Jesus? He came at night because he was afraid of the Jews just like Joseph was. And now we see them both stepping out of the darkness, stepping out of the shadows, and being willing to follow Jesus openly. Friends, there comes a point oftentimes in our Christian faith where faith has to turn into courage. There's a decision point that we have to make. Are we going to publicly proclaim Jesus? That we're a follower of Christ? That we want to follow in behind Him? That He is our Lord and our Savior? That we will trust in His Word? That we will live under His promises? And that's exactly what Joseph did. We're told here in verse 43 that he took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. He took courage and went and followed him. You remember the story of Esther in the Old Testament? Esther was a young Jewish girl, yet she was part of those who had been exiled and was now living in the palace of Persia. In fact, became queen of all of Persia. Haman was a hater of the Jews. He wanted to kill them all. He built these great gallows that he would kill them upon. And Mordecai, who was Esther's uncle, went to Esther and said, Do not think that just because you are a queen in the palace, that you will escape death either. And that maybe in God's grace and in His providence, He has put you here for such a time as this. She had a decision to make. What is she going to do? And you and I have similar decisions to make, similar points in life where we have to confess, yes, Jesus is not only Lord, but He is my Lord. When we have to take courage in life and make a stand, and all the more so when we believe that the resurrection is true. That God has the power to raise the dead, and if He has the power to raise the dead, He has the power to hold me in His hand. And I can take courage and follow Jesus. The more we take courage and follow Christ, the more we evidence the fact that we have genuine and real faith in the power of the resurrection. I think many of us probably live very insulated lives, though. We go from one safe place to another safe place. And we have many Christian friends, and those are great blessings from God. But sometimes there comes a point in which we are tested. A point in which we are taken out of all of those safe avenues of life. And the question is going to be, am I prepared to take courage? Am I prepared to follow Christ when it's hard, when it's risky, and when it may demand everything of me? My position in the Sanhedrin for Joseph his wealth, his place in the community. For Nicodemus, he was a teacher. He was the teacher in Israel. What would he lose for following Jesus? What would we lose? And are we willing to take courage? But not only does God turn faith into courage, the final thing here is this, that faith leads to restoration. Look in verse 7. 
The angel tells the women to go tell his disciples and Peter. And Peter. Now why? Is that because Peter is the greatest of all disciples? No, it's just the opposite. It's because Peter has been so bold and so brash to say that even though all of these will not fall away, I will not. And yet he has fallen and denied Jesus three times, failing miserably. Now even though all the disciples heard the testimony of these women eventually, we're told in the other Gospel accounts that it's Peter when he hears it. And the disciples deny it. He takes off running. Running for the tomb. And the only person who beats them there is John. Maybe John was in better shape than Peter was. And then on the seashore. Remember when the disciples were gathered, they had gone back to fishing. And there's Peter in the boat with the other fishermen, the other disciples, and Jesus arrives on the seashore and they see Him. What does Peter do? He dives into the water. He's running to the tomb. He's diving into the water. Why? Because he wants to see his Savior. Is it true? Is he really risen? Because if that's true, then all of my failure is washed away. The fact that I didn't take courage is no longer on my account. But it's gone. And so here, the angel says, tell the disciples and tell Peter too. Because there's restoration awaiting. We all long for that. We all long for for restoration. We all long for the redemption of our bodies. We all long for that day in which we will see God face to face and we'll be given restored bodies. What a glorious day that will be. But even more than that, I think what we look forward to is the restoration of relationships. The restoration of relationships of of people who have gone before us and we long to see them. But also the reconciliation and restoration of relationships that were very, very hard. That were very difficult for us. After Josh McDowell became a Christian when he was in college, he was in a severe car wreck and was badly injured. He broke his leg and his arm and his neck and he was in traction. One day while he was laying there in bed, could not communicate, the only thing he could do was blink. In walks his father. And he said, the first thing I noticed was that he was sober. He was sober. And the second thing was his father rushed and threw himself upon his son and said, son, how could you love a father like me? Josh said, you know what? Six months ago, I despised you. I hated you. I wanted you dead. But I've come to know the one who was dead and is now risen. It's true. Jesus really is the Son of God. And He really is risen. And His Father that very instant prayed to God, God, would You forgive me? Would you cleanse me? And he did just that. And in fact, from that day on till the rest of his life, which only lasted 14 months because he would drunk himself into oblivion, he never picked up a bottle again. And now Josh can say, one day I look forward to being restored, not only to my heavenly Father, 
to my earthly father too. Isn't that a great hope? Isn't that glorious to think? It may not work out for you in, in this life the way it worked out for Josh McDowell, but my friends in glory, one day there is full reconciliation, full restoration, and that's our hope. It's not just that the tomb is, is empty. It's not just that intellectually we can say, yes, it's true, but that we place our faith in it because our hope is that because Jesus is raised, He will restore us to Himself and He will restore us to one another. What a glorious hope that we have in Christ. So when we leave here today, it's faith that casts out all fear. All fear that says, God can't love me. It's faith that takes courage. It says, if God can raise the dead, He can hold me in His hands. And it's faith that looks forward with great hope to the restoration that you and I will receive in glory when God welcomes us into His arms. And all those who have gone before us and come after us will welcome us too. What a glorious day. May our faith be in a risen Savior. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank You. You have been merciful to us and gracious to us. You have poured out Your mercies upon us, all because Jesus was dead and is now alive. We ask this morning that our hope would be in the fact that Jesus has been resurrected so that we would live for Him, we would trust in Him, and our hope would be in Him. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.